It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no sheets. The land of fucking with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Sixth Southern Gang, and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, Dr. Bones, that guy, that guy that just loves to tell you what to do to make sure that you stay healthy in times of trouble, even in the dark heart of the city. (laughs) (laughs) This is And who are we? Well, well, first, what is this? And this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a den of deliverance in a dastardly world. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones. As you asked, I am indeed Dr. Bones, Joe Alton, MD, of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Absolutely, and I am Nurse Amy, also known as Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right, and together we are the medical matrimony, beauty and the beast, the queen and the codger, and all sorts of other exciting stuff, but we are here specifically for one purpose, and that's to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a germ-laden gerbil? Well, that's your story and you're sticking to it? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicine is nowhere to be found because of some grid-ending event, you better figure out how to keep people healthy without all the trappings of high technology. If that happened, well... Would you have the knowledge? Would you have the training and the supplies 
to be an effective medic to become the highest medical asset and keep your family healthy in times of trouble. Well, I'll tell you what time it is. It's time to show the world that you've got more sense than a box of frogs and get some training, get some education. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit to go along with all that? You'll never have to prove your courage to me in any other way if you can get a great kit. And I can't think of a better place to get that medical kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your home, your vehicle, your workplace, school, church safer, gosh, just about everywhere. And they are designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. I'd like you guys out there to compare our kits for contents and quality and, sure enough, cost with anybody else's stuff. I think you'll agree that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. Find out what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of all that, remember our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So give us a chance, Vance. Why not connect with the old <laughs> geezer and the beautiful goddess? It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. You want a one-stop shopping? Go to the Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy channel. And if you forget all of that, don't worry. Just go to doomandbloom.net. At the top of the page are all the icons for every single thing I mentioned and more. That's right. And did I mention you can find some of our articles in great magazines like American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, Backwoods Home, all sorts of different great locations where you'll find our articles and other resources, educational and physical equipment. Hey, here's one last shameless plug, last one I promise for our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. It's a detailed look into the fish and bird antibiotics and infections that I've been writing about all these years. It's about 322 pages of information that would make an effective provider out of you in outbreaks of infectious disease off the grid. We concentrate on those antibiotics that are available to the average person and the disease that those antibiotics cure. All the stuff I've been writing about all these years that I'm convinced in wise hands will save some who otherwise wouldn't be alive in times of trouble. I can confidently say you have not read a book like this especially not one written by other medical professionals. And this is just not stuff you're going to learn at CERC class or even from books like Where There Is No Doctor. We'll discuss all sorts of infectious diseases, how antibiotics work, how to use them wisely, individual antibiotics, diseases each one treats, the dosing, the side effects, allergies, pregnancy, and pediatric considerations, all sorts of stuff. Talk about expiration dates, putting together sick rooms, dealing with wound infections, open wound care, all kinds of supplies and much more. If you want to be medically prepared, you're going to want Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there is not a modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical professional ASAP. You know, sometimes diseases that are rare today 
pop up unexpectedly in the strangest places, such as the recent outbreak of mumps, the childhood disease mumps, on the warship USS Fort McHenry. 25 sailors came down with the illness, wound up being hospitalized on the ship. They did not medevac them out. And the ship itself was quarantined at sea for two months. Wound up having to stay at sea for two months that it ordinarily would not have been simply because of this strange and very contagious outbreak. Now, if you're going to be concerned about medical issues and long-term survival scenarios, and I certainly hope you are, it's important to recognize that infectious diseases may return to the scene, that there are a number of them that can. In the American South, malaria and yellow fever, things like that, were common killers in the old days, and they could be certainly in the future. In the case of mumps, let's face it, Although we have vaccinations these days and most kids don't get mumps, children of survivors in true long-term settings, they're going to be unvaccinated. And a few years down the road, measles, mumps, whooping cough, things like that, they're going to make their reappearance. It's important to be able to identify people that are afflicted with these kinds of diseases. So today I want to talk about mumps. Mumps is a viral contagious disease that's caused by a member of the paramyxovirus family. Although the symptoms of mumps were first described by Hippocrates, yes, that Hippocrates, in the 5th century BC, the actual organism that caused it wasn't identified until the mid-1930s. Mumps was a frequent cause of hospitalization among soldiers and anybody that wound up living in close quarters during World War I and before, and that was surpassed only by influenza and gonorrhea in that time period during World War I. Common complications of mumps, actually, though they rarely happen these days, they certainly happened back then. They included central nervous system disorders such as deafness, meningitis, which is a inflammation of the spinal cord and the, co- the covers of the spinal cord called the dura. These areas actually cause major damage, also caused infertility in a number of people. Both males and females could affect the testicles and could affect the ovaries. Now, after vaccinations were introduced in 1967, the number of cases in the U.S. dropped from 186,000 yearly to just several hundred. Now, having said that, outbreaks of mumps still do occur. In 2006, there were 6,000 cases in the USA, and there were 3,500 in 2009 to 2010. There have been about 150 in the first couple of months of 2019. Although mumps can damage the central nervous system and the testicles and ovaries, like I mentioned, it's actually most well-known for the swelling of the glands in the face that produce saliva. As such, that victim, a mumps victim, has a characteristic appearance. Its cheeks are puffed out, sometimes one more than another. The jaw is swollen. And these are things that usually occur about 16 to 18 days after exposure. You'll also see things like fever, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, in various degrees of severity. And in most cases, people come out of it just fine. But there are occasional instances where people lose their hearing or Uh, have problems later on in life having children. Mumps spreads through saliva or mucus from the mouth and, and of course, the nose and the throat. And an infected person can spread the virus airborne through coughing or sneezing, but you can also get it by personal contact, by touching 
surfaces that are contaminated with the virus or share even sharing eating utensils. Victims continue to be contagious for up to five days after symptoms start. They should be isolated. And to learn how to establish an epidemic sick room, either check out the website. I have articles on it there at doomandbloom.net or consider a copy of our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. So we have, although we do talk mostly about bacterial infection and antibiotics in that book, we do talk about sick rooms as well. Now, treatment of mumps is pretty much just supportive. It's a virus. You can't cure it simply with an antibiotic. But bed rest is good. Meds that lower fever, ibuprofen, Tylenol, they're pretty useful. Uh, They treat muscle aches as well. Of course, pain in the jaws and elsewhere might be eased with the application of ice packs or sometimes heat packs. Some people feel uh, more comfortable with that. Uh, And they put that on the affected areas wherever you're most swollen. You might need a soft diet, lots of fluids, warm gargles with salt water. They're also helpful because the swelling and inflammation of it may get to the throat and also make it difficult to swallow. Now, the good news is that for our military, most of our sailors, 24 of the 25, are already back on duty. All are expected to fully recover. But mumps is one case of a childhood illness or a rare infectious disease that you may see come back again in times of trouble. Okay. Well, you know what? I've been talking about hypothermia pretty much every winter for, gosh, the last 10 years or so, ever since I've had a website to put something on. And I'll tell you, every time that I've talked about hypothermia, and sometimes I'll talk about it as late as March. I wrote an article about it just a few weeks ago. So sometimes we're well into winter, and sometimes we're just at the very beginning. At this time, it was later on. But hypothermia is definitely an issue. Now, it's an issue for humans, but it's also an issue for animals. And one of the big concerns of survivors is what happens to their dog. And certainly hypothermia, a medical condition where the body can't maintain a normal body core temperature, can occur in dogs just like it can occur in humans. Cold temperatures aren't just a hazard for people. Man's best friend is also at risk for developing all sorts of medical issues due to exposure. I remember having a dog that wasn't a pick of the litter intelligence-wise, but was a wonderful, wonderful animal. But he would go outside, and even though he had water and everything they needed, shade, he would just be running around exuberantly in the hot sun down here in South Florida, wound up with heat stroke, managed to save its life, thank goodness, but it's something that can occur. And just as it can occur with heat, it can occur with cold as well. So your dog can actually die of exposure to cold. Now, some breeds do have a nice thick coat of fur, and that is protective for them somewhat, but it's important to know the signs of hypothermia in dogs and how to prevent and treat the condition. So Signs of hypothermia in canines, they include things like an increased heart rate, that's called tachycardia, fast breathing, that's called tachypnea, lethargy, of course, lack of energy and alertness. You'll see that uh, in humans, too, when they wind up getting too cold. Uh, The dogs will, of course, shiver. They'll shiver excessively in really cold weather. They may lose coordination, Their muscles start getting stiff, and interestingly enough, their pupils dilate. So if you can see your dog's pupils, 
you'll see that they will dilate and, and that can signal hypothermia. Also, another thing that you'll notice is their gums will appear rather pale compared to what they normally are. So that's something else that you'll see. If you actually took a rectal temperature, the rectal temperature of the dog would be below 99 degrees Fahrenheit. So our temperature range is probably 70, 97 to 99 degrees for a normal temperature. For dogs, it's probably 101 to 102.5 degrees for a normal temperature. So if they're below 99, they are indeed getting into the hypothermic range. And these dogs, of course, wind up going into shock. And you'll see that oftentimes if they're, uh, well, if they fall through the ice in a lake or, or something like that. Although fast heart rates and breathing are seen pretty early in hypothermia, once you get pretty far along, the dog starts getting beyond the point where help is going to do any make any difference, really. The heart rate and the breathing will slow down, eventually will stop. Now, another condition that can affect both humans and canines is frostbite. Frostbite appears mostly in dogs on the paws, on the tail, and the ears. So you want to look for discoloration of the skin. And it usually appears sort of grayish, may turn blue. Frostbitten areas are going to be painful for the dog. They'll swell or you'll see blisters that could develop. That happens also in humans. Skin breaks down. Definitely major trauma to the skin to be exposed to excessive cold. That's both humans and dogs. Then in extreme situations, the skin turns black and dies. A condition known as gangrene also can occur in humans. As treatment, warm water compresses are usually pretty helpful. But honestly, if there is veterinary help around, seek a modern medical or a veterinary professional so that you can really get the best care for the dog. Because oftentimes they'll give them IV fluids, warm IV fluids to heat them up a little bit. Now, once you've recognized the signs of hypothermia, you want to get the dog out of the cold as quickly as possible, do whatever you can, get the dog warm and dry. Of course, this is accomplished, I think, best by getting the dog inside. But if you can't get the dog inside, it's especially important to provide a barrier between the animal and the cold ground. Warm, dry towels, not hot, they're useful. Uh, if you can, you could use a warm water bottle or heating pad set on low, but only if you cover it with a blanket, not directly on the skin. That's very important. Placing it on the belly of the dog seems to work best and monitor the dog's rectal temperature. You should see an improvement in signs and symptoms once it starts going above about 100 degrees or so. Uh, the heating pad or hot water bottle, by the way, can be removed once the dog's at about 100 degrees. You certainly don't want to overheat the dog, but you might keep the warm blankets until the dog starts getting active again and, you know, is fully recovered. Of course, wherever veterinary professionals are available, seek them out. I'm just an old country doctor. I've treated birds and fish and dogs, of course, but I'm not a pro. A veterinarian can administer oxygen, give IV lines, and speed recovery. That's something that is very important. Now, for prevention, important to know that puppies and elderly dogs are most at risk for hypothermia. Dogs, if they have kidney disease or malnutrition, heart disease, low thyroid level, other chronic issues, they're also prone to hypothermia. Make sure you keep an eye on the weather. Avoid prolonged exposure to severe cold. Simplest way, really, to keep your dog healthy in cold weather. Dogs with short coats, well, they need a coat. So get a dog jacket or other protective clothing. Limit the amount of time that they're out in extreme cold. 
You might envy your dog's fur when outside in cold weather, but it doesn't mean that he is a polar bear. He's not a polar bear, so always keep a lookout for signs of hypothermia. Act before your best friend gets in real trouble. You know, every so often I've come across articles on expiration dates, and I just came across one in the latest issue of Wilderness Environmental Medicine, the Journal of the Wilderness Medical Society, of which I am a member and advanced uh, wilderness expedition provider. So I looked at this and I saw that this was a remote environment. They just tested about five or six drugs that they happened to have that had been expired, but that were useful, including an antibiotic and some other medicines that they use in emergency situations. And these were expired for quite some time and indeed were completely potent when they were tested. Now, long ago, all this stuff was considered to be taboo to talk about testing or, or using expired drugs, but indeed the conclusion of this study actually said you can use this stuff if you actually need to. Well, long ago, one of my first articles about preparedness, uh, first articles in my career was on expiration dates. So what they were, what do they mean for the average person who has medicine that's no longer fresh quote-unquote fresh, I guess. You read all sorts of stuff about how dangerous any drug becomes once it passes the date on the bottle. But what actually does happen? I mean, does it still work? Does it become poisonous? Do you grow a horn in the middle of your forehead? Well, before I start, I want people to know that in normal times, yeah, sure, usually it is the best policy to use drugs that are not expired and call your healthcare provider to refill them as prescribed and have fresh medicine there. My focus, however, is not that. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, that I talk about medical preparedness for major disasters and long-term survival. That's a whole different ballgame. And throwing away medicine as soon as it expires, well, that's going to leave you without a means of stockpiling medical supplies if you're thrown off the grid. So what are expiration dates? Expiration dates were first mandated in the U.S. in 1979, and they represent the last day that a pharmaceutical company will guarantee that their drug is 100% potent or 100% full strength. Now, in the grand majority of cases, these medicines do not, by and large, become toxic after the expiration date. They don't become poisonous. They do not become poisonous in the grand majority of cases. If you take a pill the month after it expires, it's unlikely you're going to turn green or grow feathers. That is, unless you're a parrot. In many cases, drugs in pill, powder, or capsule form will be 100% potent for years after their expiration dates. Now, why would I say that? That is just outrageous. Some old country doctor saying crazy stuff. Well, the truth is, the government and the evidence all agree. As a matter of fact, that article in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, that is just one of many that have corroborated what I've said for all these years. Now, how did we figure this out? Now, the U.S. has a national emergency medical response, and to respond medically, you need medicine, right? The Department of Defense and other federal agencies stockpile millions of doses of various medicines that are used in emergency settings. In the past, when those drugs expired, they revved up the forklifts and they threw out tens of millions of dollars worth of medicine. Now, as you might imagine, this gets to be pretty expensive. So a study was performed called the Shelf Life Extension Program, something I first wrote about many years ago. 
This program tested 122 drugs that were used in emergency settings and found that most medications, as long as they're in pill or capsule form, were still effective after their expiration dates, oftentimes four years. I think between two and 12 years, something like that. So as such, I recommend not throwing them away, but instead making them part of your survival medical storage. Go ahead and keep getting fresh medicines from your doctor, but maybe not throw away everything. Uh, of course, I'm talking about medicines that are in pill or capsule form because the evidence didn't show the same longevity for medicines that were in liquid form, things like insulin, pediatric antibiotic elixirs, stuff like that. They lost potency pretty quickly after their expiration dates, and so not really useful for long-term survival settings. Now, I did. I will say one thing about liquid medicine, that there was a study on expired EpiPens recently. That's liquid, liquid epinephrine. They found that most of these retained some potency even three years after their expiration dates, some up to 80% potency. Now, the company even states that if all you have is an expired EpiPen, you should use it if there is a severe allergic reaction, but be aware that it may not be as effective. You may need to give an additional dose. Well, the government didn't change their system. You would think they might as a result of the shelf life extension program data. You'll still find expiration dates on your medicine bottles. What the authorities do instead is they put out what's called an emergency use authorization for certain drugs as needed. That is legal under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The FDA is allowed to approve unapproved, such as expired medical products, or unapproved uses of approved medical products so as to be able to use them in an emergency to diagnose or treat or even prevent serious or life-threatening diseases. And, and especially in situations where there are no adequate and available alternatives. And this led to the five-year extension that was given for the antiviral drug Tamiflu. That was during the 2009 swine flu epidemic. They also approved an emergency use authorization for the antibiotic doxycycline. And that is a pretty amazing thing because the Drug companies say that tetracycline, if it's expired more than a year, can be very dangerous to your kidneys, and doxycycline is indeed a member of the tetracycline family. So, of course, I would, if you had people that were suffering from kidney disease, if that were suffering from liver disease, maybe I might not take that drug, but indeed, the government said that you could take it even if it was several years over its expiration date because they had concerns about anthrax. As a matter of fact, the military bought up a bunch of doxycycline back a few years ago. But despite all this, you know, legally authorizing the extension of expiration dates and all of the scientific evidence that has come out in the last few years, you're going to see quotes often from academic types that all medicines are dangerous when expired should be tossed. Now, these opinions in normal times, but if you're listening to this program, well, the truth is, is that you're probably concerned about the future, and you might even be the person that would wind up being medically responsible in situations where help is no longer an option. Now, you're exactly who I want to talk to. Now, in a true long-term survival scenario, you may one day have to make a decision about whether to use or not to use an expired medication. 
You know, let's say you have a loved one who's fading from an infection. Something bad has happened. You're off the grid. Little or no hope of getting to modern medical care. You've got an expired bottle of antibiotics. What are you going to do? Somebody you love is dying. Are you going to use the expired drug or not? Yep, well, that's your call. But I'll tell you what I would do. I probably would use the medicine. For the longest shelf life, medicines should be stored in cool, dry, dark conditions. Their potency fades about twice as fast if they're stored at 90 degrees than if they're stored at 50 degrees. Freezing them, however, is rarely needed, and sometimes it's harmful to the medicine itself. So it's something that you shouldn't do unless the package says that that's what you need to do. Now, even if stored in suboptimal conditions, a capsule or a tablet that hasn't changed color, consistency, smell, they're probably still worth keeping for austere settings. Now, we'll say that you can tell if something is bad simply because from the smell sometimes, if there's a foul odor, or uh, in a case of aspirin, if it smells like ammonia, it's probably not good and should not be taken. Now, years ago, I suggested on this very podcast and in a true disaster, the issues that we'll be facing the medically responsible are going to be very, very basic. What is the problem? Do I have medicine that could treat it? Could the medicine, although it's expired, possibly save a life? And when it comes down to it, can you really choose to not use that medicine because it may possibly have side effects or perhaps not be as strong in its effect? Well, Let's hope it never gets to the point that you have to make those decisions, but you have to think about situations like that from a survival mindset. You know, hoping for the best and preparing for the worst, not a bad strategy when it comes to dealing with the uncertain future. Hey, you know what? You might know my good friend Todd Sepulveda. Todd Sepulveda runs a popular website, prepperwebsite.com, has basically an anthology of all the different articles that come up and all sorts of different websites. And he's got a podcast on the site, and he was gracious enough to interview me recently on various aspects of medical preparedness. So I want you to listen in on some basics and some specifics on medical issues in disasters or any off-the-grid settings. This is important information. It's very useful to either get on the bandwagon when it comes to medical preparedness or to find out exactly what medicines you need, things like that. So here are some excerpts from my interview on Todd Sepulveda's Prepper Website podcast. So starting out, you know, why should a prepper want to store medicine? Well, for the same reason that the average citizen would want health insurance. I mean, they don't want to get sick, but they want access to treatment. For the prepper, the same reason that they would want to store food, water, a means of defense. You know, as preparedness folks, we have to have an awareness of the issues that would accompany a really major disaster. Issues with water, food, shelter, maybe even air. At my ballpark, medical issues. You'd think that everybody would have this kind of awareness, but the truth of the matter is it's limited to maybe 3 or 4% of the population. It's one of the saddest things. And one thing that I have been trying to get people to be more prepared in the face of of disaster. That's my mission, actually, to put a medically prepared person, at least one of them, in every family. That's a problem because the average citizen just doesn't think about things about like like how to purify water, how to cook food thoroughly enough if you didn't have, of course, modern conveniences, how to remain warm enough or cool enough, enough in, in an off-grid setting. Nobody thinks about this type of thing. And they certainly aren't concerned enough, if they're not going to think about that, 
to prepare for things like epidemics of infectious disease, wound infections that would occur, invariably occur as a result of doing activities to which they're just not accustomed. Activities of daily survival, things that would be a challenge for every family in the face of a calamity. I don't know about you, but I probably would injure myself if I had to chop wood for fuel on a daily basis. So these are things that people should think about. I mean, maybe the most common preventable cause of death in survival settings would be things that you could have easily prevented or treated. Things like cholera from bad water, uh, dysentery from contaminated food, things that wound infections, things that would kill tons of people, many more people than a gunfight at the OK Corral. Hopefully you're not going to have those on a daily basis in a survival setting, but you will have concerns about bad food, bad water on a daily basis. So everybody that's interested in disaster preparedness should be interested in medical preparedness. They should develop the knowledge, the skills, the training to get the supplies that are necessary to save lives in times of trouble, and that includes medicine. Completely. I, I, when I think about uh, preparedness, when I first got into preparedness, I, you know, I, I looked at all the different websites and there was a couple of different ones that hit right off the bat. Yours, I think, humanbloom.net was like the third one that I wound up hitting. And the reason being is I know that it's pretty easy to figure out how to do fire and build a fire and cook and, and all those different things about preparedness. But um, I tend to think short-term and also long-term as well. And long-term, you know, being that, hey, there's not going to be modern medicine and stuff like that. So I, you know, I feel that it is very important to be able to have more medical knowledge. And that's why that's why I love what you do. And I've tr- always tried to promote what you guys are, are doing. Thank so, you. I can't tell you how blessed we've been to have so many people that have supported our mission and picked up the flag and taken the role of medic for their family. You know, we have spent time together and those that are listening and in, in, uh, to the to the podcast and watching the interview, um, you two are the two of the nicest people that I, I know. And Thank so I, I love what you guys are doing. So Ditto. Mo- moving, forward, Ditto. <laughs> moving forward with medicine, talking about right. it, it, it boils down to one of those things where you have to put a little bit of work into it, a little bit of thought, a little bit of planning. Um, you know, I think sometimes people want, just give me the number and I want to go get that from the store and put it in my closet and I'll be good. But the truth is there's a little bit more to it than that when it comes to preparedness planning for, for everything, food, water, but it, even medicine. So, uh, yeah, that's something that we need to, to work with and struggle with and to really think this through. So before we talk about medicine to stockpile, um, if we could only have one medicine, what one that would be the, you know, I, I know it's not the end all be all, but if there was only one that we could stockpile, what, what would you say? What would that be? If there was one product that would prevent the most disease, I would actually say that would be water purification tablets or some method of purifying water. I mean, seeing how many people die from bad water in, in scenarios, well, I mean, let's look back at our own history. Civil War soldiers, how many died from disease caused by bad water and contaminated food that compared to those who died from bullets or shrapnel? Probably a two-to-one disease versus uh, battlefield injuries. But that's not technically medicine. We're not going to call that medicine. I, I, I would have to say antibiotics. And that this is one thing that people don't really 
pay too much attention to trying to accumulate that I think would make the most sense for people. There are some natural products that have antibacterial effects. I support the use of honey, for example, as an antibacterial agent. Garlic has antibacterial properties, but they don't, in my opinion, don't, probably don't reach the effect that pharmaceutical antibiotics have. And so you should have a supply of those. What would cause the greatest number of illnesses and avoidable deaths, avoidable deaths in a long-term disaster scenario? If an earthquake occurs and a fissure opens up and you happen to be standing where the fissure is opening up, you're probably going to go to the earth's core and that's it for you. But, but infection, you can nip that in the bud. And so there's a lot of stuff that you can do. And the thing is, is that we have very little issues with infectious disease outbreaks now, but in the past, especially in the American South, we had things like yellow fever, we had malaria, things that you don't consider to be a disease in America or an infection that you'd see in America were once very common. There were yellow fever epidemics all over the place in New Orleans, if you've been to New Orleans, and Florida, and southern parts of Savannah, you know, all sorts of stuff. And you just walk through any old, any old cemetery and read the inscriptions. You're going to see all sorts of people, children, women, young men who died well before their time. I mean, most of these people weren't run over by a car. They didn't die in a plane crash, and they weren't even killed in battle. They had some infection that killed them as an infant or a toddler. They had maybe some infection after having a baby if they were a woman. And with the advent of antibiotics, you see much fewer gravestones that have little lambs and hearts and angels on them. You know what I would like to say, though, is could we say the same thing? Can we say the same thing if we were thrown off the grid? I mean, we have no chance of accessing the miracle of modern medicine. We would start losing these people again mm-hmm. unless you have antibiotics. That's my thing. I'm talking about that a lot lately because, of course, I'm making shameless plugs for my new book. But the truth of the matter is, is that it is something that would make a lot of sense. And I have been writing about it for about 10 years. So uh, it's something that I really think would be use- useful to have. Great. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about antibiotics here in a, in a little bit. Um, so something that's a little bit and we'll, we'll talk about maybe where we can get antibiotics and, and things like that. Before we move there, what about over-the-counter medicines that preppers can easily stockpile? Can you give us maybe seven to ten, you know, whatever you think, different uh, over-the-counter medicines that we could go right now that we can purchase, and uh, and what you know why we would want those specific ones? That's an awesome question. I'll tell you, over-the-counter medicines deal with a wide variety of problems, and the truth of the matter is, most of them started off as prescription medicines. And the great thing about them is that, as you say, they're widely available, easy to accumulate in quantity, and that is ideal, uh, just basically what the survival medic, exactly what they need. They need something like that, something that they can get in the quantity that would make a difference in a long-term situation. So you have to realize that manufacturing pharmaceuticals is different. These are going to be nearly impossible to produce after a collapse. So even aspirin, which was the oldest manufactured drug, I think 1884 or 1886 was when it was first manufactured, that's not going to be available, at least in a form that you would recognize. So let's talk about some of the ones that you're talking, that you would want me to recommend. And one, number one, ibuprofen. Ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, or some of the brand names that good pain reliever, anti-inflammatory, fever reducer. Uh, it's useful for a lot of different problems, and it makes it useful to stockpile for arthritis, 
for injuries, traumatic injuries, strains, sprains. It can help reduce inflammation due to a lot of different causes that are not trauma-related. Uh, ibuprofen is also useful, reducing fevers, of course, from infections. The, the downside is that it can cause stomach upset, but it does that only in some people. Tylenol would be an additional one. Another popular pain reliever and fever reducer can be used for all the problems that you take ibuprofen for just about with the added benefit of not causing stomach irritation or thinning the blood, which is something that uh, ibuprofen can also do. But it does not have the anti-inflammatory effect that ibuprofen does. It's excellent for the treatment of pain and fevers in children, especially in its lower doses. Aspirin, We'll go down to pain relievers. If if you have ibuprofen and acetaminophen, Tylenol, that is, in your medical storage, why would you consider aspirin? That seems like a sort of redundancy. Well, the truth of the matter is it's a good anti-inflammatory. It's a fever reducer. It's a pain reliever. But it has blood thinning properties as well. So you might have some people that are on Coumadin or some other kind of blood thinning medicine, but that run out of it as a result of it not being manufactured anymore for some disaster. And in that circumstance, you're going to want to have something that they could use instead that would have some blood thinning capacity and aspirin would be good for that. Also, it would be good to help people prevent uh, coronary heart attacks. If you take uh, baby aspirin on a, on a daily basis, known to decrease your chances of heart, heart attack. If you're having a heart attack, a chewing full aspirin would actually full adult dose of aspirin actually may help. Of course, I mean, heart attacks and things like that are pretty problematic in survival situations and a little, probably a little too complex to talk about today. Loperamide, its brand name is Imodium, very useful, high likelihood of food and water contamination issues. I mentioned that a million times today. So you got to have that medicine essential as an anti-diarrheal medicine because if you can slow down the intestinal motility, you're going to lose less water from the body and remain hydrated longer. These people who got these in, in the Civil War, they didn't die just because there was a bacteria in their body from bad water. They died because it caused so much water loss from diarrhea that they became dehydrated. And without, of course, the availability of intravenous rehydration, well, they died simply because they got too dehydrated. Can, Go ahead. can I inter interrupt you there? I know Imodium comes in many different forms. There's the liquid form and there's the capsule form. So which form would be the best to stockpile? I want you to use the two, two milligram capsule form or, or tablet form. would make a lot more sense because it will last a lot longer. Medicines that are in liquid form or in general don't last as long. They lose their potency relatively quickly. I've talked a lot about expiration dates and when a medicine is in a pill or a capsule form, it tends to stand the test of time if stored properly. Dry, cool, dark places, it stands the test of time better than uh, most liquid medicines. So for that reason, if you have the opportunity to choose between a capsule or, uh, or a pill or a liquid, I would choose the pill or capsule every time. That I think is important. Perfect. So talking about diarrhea, you wanna, you're going to have nausea and vomiting too. That also causes people to become dehydrated, and you may lose people from, from that if you can't rehydrate them intravenously. You want to have something like meclizine. That's also known as Dramamine or Antivert. 
comes in a couple of different um, doses, uh, I think 25, 50, I think it was 12.5. Uh, it's a medication that helps prevent nausea and vomiting. It helps deal with it. used used to prevent motion sickness, dizziness, acts as a sedative as well. So you need somebody to who's maybe anxious, needs to calm down or needs to sleep. Well, maybe a very helpful medicine to have around. Triple antibiotic ointment. I'll go back to infections. And, and if you're fending for yourself, you're going to be, as I said, chopping wood, doing all sorts of weird tasks that you don't do on a daily basis right now. And if that's the case, you're going, you're, you're going to injure yourself. And any injury that breaks the skin puts you in danger of infection. Almost everything's going to be a dirty wound. And it could lead to a life-threatening situation. So if you have triple antibiotic ointment applied to the site of the injury, it could help prevent this from happening and is certainly good as a preventative after, let's say, closing a wound or after washing a wound. It's a good thing to maybe put uh, on top of that in an effort to decrease infection. Respiratory infections, these are going to be very common as well, of course, they're very common now, and they're going to be common then. So you're going to want maybe things that will help you with that. So a decongestant like um, phenylephrine, I think, might be a very useful item to have. You're going to have a lot of people that will could use that. Benadryl, diphenhydramine, that is very useful. Uh, that's an antihistamine that helps alleviate the itching, rashes, and, and helps nasal congestion too, and all sorts of other symptoms of allergic reactions. It also helps sleep. It's a great sleep aid at the 50 milligram dose. So use 25 milligrams if you're dealing with uh, some itching or rash issues, and use 50 milligrams if you want to help people sleep. Hydrocortisone cream, very useful, 1%, uh, used for all sorts of different skin conditions, so uh, itching, flaking, thickening of the skin, redness. It's a mild, mild steroid, reduces inflammation, so very helpful. Antacids, very useful, calms heartburn and queasiness, stomach upset, calcium carbonate, will last forever, essentially. If, if you get it in, in like Tums or Rolades, the, the little um, tablet fashions, the chewables, they will last for a very long time. Antifungal agents, you're, of course, there are bacterial infections. There are also fungal infections as well. So you have to realize that there are different medicines that take care of those than take care of bacterial infections. So athlete's feet, ringworm, jock itch, vaginal infections, things like that. Uh, you want things like uh, clotrimazole, Lotrimin is the brand name, I think, uh, myconazole cream, monostat. These are useful things to have. And I think also, well, I'll do one more, multivitamins. Uh, that sounds a little strange. It's not really uh, considered a medicine. But, you know, if there was a true collapse, the unavailability of really a good, healthy diet for so many people is going to cause problems with deficiencies, deficiencies that we don't see in the, United, in the United States, certainly, things like scurvy, which is a vitamin C deficiency, a, a vitamin B12, uh, a vitamin B deficiency, beriberi, a, a lot of crazy deficiencies occur when you don't have a diet that has these vitamins. So maybe having multivitamins might be a good thing. I wouldn't take them on a daily basis. They're not necessary to take on a daily basis. And truthfully, you excrete most of it in your urine. But uh, maybe on a weekly basis, if you were in a situation where you knew your people weren't getting the kind of diet that they would, that would ordinarily keep them healthy simply because of the situation you're in. So you might consider that. 
Sounds good. You gave us a lot of different medicines there to look at. You asked for so. 10. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, but that's good because things that probably, you know, there's things that we, that we purchase at the drugstore or whatever, at the big box store. And, and uh, you know, we have in our medicine cabinet, but a lot of the times we always know that we can go and get those things, but we're not always thinking about, like, for instance, the anti-diarrheal. We're not looking at some of those other, you know, it's just like it's so quick to run and go get those. But, you know, if you're in a, in a SHTF situation, you wouldn't be able to, to do that. And so having the idea to, hey, you know what, I need to have some of these things already in place because they would make a big, big difference, kind of like what you mentioned there. Uh, you're you're absolutely correct, and these are medicines that they could last, uh, you know, a very long time if you store them right. Now, a lot. Of, I just wanted to say that the medicine cabinet in your bathroom is probably not the best place to store them because there's most of the time people, of course, take their showers and their baths there, and uh, most people like hot water. And there's humidity that's uh, more humidity in those rooms in your bathrooms than probably the rest of your house. So maybe. That's not the best place to have your survival medicine stores. That's a good point. Okay. So, yes. Perfect. Can you give us a couple of antibiotics that are good general? And I mean, is there such a thing, right? I'm not a professional. You're the professional. Is there uh, an overall general antibiotic maybe that if preppers were looking to get some of these, purchase some of these, um, that they would say, okay, this is maybe the first one I should get, maybe the second one? I don't know. There are a number of antibiotics that we write about, so many in our book that, honestly, few people would have the wherewithal to purchase large quantities of every single one of them. So in reality, you do have to make a decision as to what makes the most sense for you. Unfortunately, no one antibiotic cures all bacterial infections. And again, I just want to say again, no antibiotic cures viral infections at all. In any major catastrophe, you're going to have to fend for yourself. You're going to have a lot of infections to deal with. So, therefore, what you need to do is you need to find the right antibiotics to make sense. I think the first one might be amoxicillin or something in the amoxicillin family. This family is called the beta-lactam, beta-lactam drug family. It includes all the penicillins and includes uh, things like Keflex or cephalexin. And so having, I think... Amoxicillin or cephalexin, uh, keflex or amoxil, uh, these are good options for, it's good for a number of wound infections, good for a number of respiratory infections. And these things would be pretty common in survival settings to have these kind of things. And so I think that that would be a, a good thing. And the reason why it's spe- those, these are especially good is because they're okay to use in pregnant ladies. There are medications that can be given to children, although lower doses, we tell you the doses that you should use in, in the book, of course. Doxycycline, I think, is a good second choice. That's a member of the member of the tetracycline family. It helps take care of a lot of abdominal and diarrheal infections, but also some respiratory infections as well. Doxycycline is called bird biotic. Metronidazole, also known as fish zole, will deal with both bacteria and parasites, and that's especially useful for those people that are going to be living in the backcountry or heading heading to a retreat in the backcountry in times of trouble where clear running water may still harbor, it may look pretty, but it may still harbor Giardia or other common organisms. So that might be a useful thing to have. After that, I would say clindamycin is really good. Sulfa drugs, azithromycin, uh, z all of these come in 
fish versions, clindamycin, clindamycin is fish sin, C-I-N. Uh, fish sulfa, forte is the sulfa drug. And azithromycin, I think, is called bird zithro. These are good alternatives, and they're all, except all of that, doxycycline and these other medicines are all acceptable in penicillin allergic patients. But if you've had a good experience with one or the other, I think that makes a little bit of sense. If you've taken clindamycin in the past and that worked well, or your family was able to tolerate that particular medicine, didn't have a lot of bad side effects, you know, that would be something that would go into my thinking in terms of picking an antibiotic that I would want. You might consider drugs like erythromycin. That's another one that comes in fish version, fish mycin, for uh, those infections. I think that if you have a mix of these, Keflex or Fishflex, Fishmox, uh, bird biotic, doxycycline, those two, and then one or two of the others that I've mentioned, you might be good for many different types of infections. Like I said, it's not doesn't cure all. You know, no one medicine cures all, but you'll certainly be able to hit a lot of the types of infections that would occur in survival settings. Okay, that was our good friend Todd Sepulveda interviewing me for his podcast, Prepper Website Podcast. Don't forget, check that out and his website, PrepperWebsite.com. Don't forget that we have a eight-hour class coming up on April 20th in Atlanta, Georgia. Also on May 4th, we have a class in Kodak, Tennessee, in between Gatlinburg and Knoxville. So please check our classes page for more information. Sign up for these classes. I guarantee you will be glad you did. This is all we have for this week's episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.